Hello, and welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. So today I've brought you another ghastly tale to celebrate spooky season. Exciting. Uh, Yeah, it's very exciting. You don't even know how exciting it is, (laughs) because today I'm going to talk about the only thing I ever really want to talk about in my cold black heart of hearts, and that's vampires. Oh, boy. I knew knew this was coming. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, we grew up in the 90s. Uh, We were kind of the last generation without helicopter parents. So I did pretty much whatever I wanted to do after school and over the summer. So for the entire year that I was 10, uh, all I wanted to do was watch Interview with the Vampire every single day. And sometimes more than once a day. (laughs) So weird. (laughs) I know. Well, as you and my mother both know all too well, I can still recite Louis' entire 1791 was the year it happened monologue on command. Um, So that's kind of where it all started for me, my undying love for the undead. Uh, But that's not what I'm covering this episode, as much as I could talk about Louis and Lestat all day. Mm -hmm. Uh, Today, I want to tell you not about fictional vampires, but about real ones. What? Oh, what? Yeah. So hold on to your butts. Uh, The sources I used for this were National Geographic, Smithsonian Magazine, Vampires.com, and BBC.com, as well as a very helpful blog site called Vampires Around the World. Mm, Yeah. Okay. So some pretty legit sources there. Well, Vampires.com is where you go. Vampires.com, sure, but like National Geographic, the Smithsonian, and the BBC, so... Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, yeah, you should be. I don't want to hear any sounds from anybody about it. Let's go. You heard that in Radio Land. <laughs> so for almost as long as there have been people, those people have believed in vampires. There are ancient Mesopotamian pottery shards that depict creatures drinking the blood of humans. The Judaic mythological figure Lilith was said to live on the blood of babies. In Greek mythology, two of the goddess Hecate's daughters were vampires. One disguised herself as a mortal cutie and seduced men for the sole purpose of drinking their blood, while the other began murdering children who were under the protection of her sworn enemy, Hera. There's also Sanskrit folklore of vampire-like entities who inhabit the bodies of the recently dead. So it's, you know, it's not centralized to Europe. It's all over the world going back thousands of years people have believed in vampires and and keeping it the, the keeping it simple as in vampires as in people or creatures that drink the blood of other people mm-hmm. as their food right okay some of the earliest recorded encounters with vampires happened in 12th century england back when vampires were known as revenants These encounters were recorded by two separate legitimate historians of that time named Walter Mapp and William of Newburgh. Their stories are compelling in that they always have multiple witnesses to these events. So there's an entire family who was terrorized by their daughter's recently deceased husband. There's a dead member of the clergy who came back to mess up everybody's situation in the abbey. And there's a soldier who fell in love with an otherworldly woman he met in a bar who turned out to be part of a band of succubi. Wow. Another thing that's compelling in these stories, though, is that although they're credited as being tales of the first vampires in England, there's actually no mention in any of the texts about these revenants drinking the blood of living people. Hmm. So this was more about, like, taking their life force without 
specifically saying that they drank blood. Okay. Yeah. In more relatively modern times, belief in vampires spiked during times of diseases that people were yet to understand. One of the more notorious of these diseases is known as porphyria. And I think you'll see exactly why it caused such hysteria. Porphyria is a blood-related disease that messes with your hemoglobin. Sufferers become extremely sensitive to sunlight and their skin will start to blister as soon as they're exposed. Mm-hmm. With prolonged exposure, sometimes causing their ears and noses to fall off completely. In the most extreme cases, their gums start to recede, which makes it look like their teeth are getting longer. To top it all off, there was one particular area of Eastern Europe stricken with a porphyria epidemic during medieval times, the Romanian region known as Transylvania. Ah. Aha. Another issue that is fed into vampire mania throughout time is people being mistakenly buried alive. A lot of the time, fairly mundane disasters like plague or famine or attacks on livestock were thought to be curses brought on by the undead. In these situations, people would obviously respond by digging up the most recently deceased person in the village to put a stake through their heart or burn their body or whatever method of disposal seemed like the best idea. The trouble is that, you know, a couple hundred years ago, medicine was much less of an exact science than it is now. It wasn't terribly uncommon for someone to be pronounced dead when they were catatonic. Right. So there are innumerable cases where a group of frightened villagers would dig up a body and find that it was covered in scratches or bite marks. And there would be dirt under its fingernails where the very much alive person tried to dig their way out of their own grave. Oh, man. And went crazy scratching and biting at themselves. And, you know, you find something you weren't really expecting because they weren't really dead. You know, that's... um... That's mentioned in history at, uh, when, when they would d- bury people and, and they, they knew these things would happen. Oh, yeah. They would, they would bury them with strings attached into mm-hmm. the coffin and a bell up by um, the surface. There is actually a few different methods back then of dealing with stuff like that. Like sometimes there would be like a, a pipe inserted all the way through the bottom of the grave so that they could get oxygen, but also oh, so yeah. that they could yell and be heard. I mean, there were, this was a huge, <laughs> huge problem, especially yes. in Victorian times. And there were all kind of crazy contraptions to come up with it. Wow. So yeah, it, it happened quite a lot. And in, you know, certain parts of the world, people thought, well, you vampire. Otherwise, why would you have dirt under your nails and you're dead? That's crazy. Hey, it's a, it's a, you know, it, it's a reasonable thought. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I I believe that kind of stuff. So I'm not gonna, I'm not here to call names. Uh, Other times when they dug someone up who was actually dead when they were buried, they would still be faced with longer teeth, nails and hair from where the corpse's skin had receded during decomposition. But Mm. they thought that meant the stuff was like their nails and their teeth were growing. Had to have been quite, um, quite uh non-educated because i i feel like this was this was known for a very long time that bodies did this i think you'd be surprised at i mean in the 1800s this was happening very strange oh yeah sometimes they would also find what is known as purge fluid leaking from the mouth and nose which is like when your organs kind of liquefy and that can bubble up out of your mouth and nose and purge fluid looks a lot like blood Mm. so they would dig these people up they've got longer teeth longer nails and there's blood all around their mouth and there's scratches Uh uh-huh oh yeah inside wow in italy people sometimes buried the dead with rocks or bricks in their mouth to take away the suspected vampire's ability to bite in germany it was a mouthful of soil with a stone or a coin 
Across Europe, people sent their loved ones to the grave with their cheeks packed full of garlic bulbs, while others would first decapitate a person before burial. Mm. Archaeologists recently discovered a skeleton in Poland that was buried with a scythe laying on top of it so that its head would be cut off if it tried to rise from the grave. Oh, so it, so it, it, it rises and then slink? Yep. Yep. There is, um, there's a really cool picture of it, and I'll post it on our Instagram, but actually your mom sent me the article about this the <laughs> other day, and I was like, okay, time to do vampires. Sally wants to hear about vampires. Yeah. But yeah, in the picture, like the blade is lying like right across a homeboy's neck, so if he moved wow. it all, like the blade's there. Well, I, I had even heard of people being buried with like iron bars or concrete slabs over oh, yeah. over the uh, the coffin or where the coffin was buried to prevent the rising. I think that's what it was. Right. Oh, yeah. There's all kinds of stuff like that. It's, it's nuts. In addition to these instances of mass hysteria and a general lack of understanding of what happens after death, there are also some instances of vampires walking among us in America. Here? Here. So because you and I went on a vampire tour in New Orleans, you already know about Wayne and John Carter and the mysterious <laughs> Ursuline convent and Jacques St. Germain. So I'm not going to cover those here as much as I would love to. Um, but for our listeners interested in vampire culture, do please look those up because they are fascinating stories. Yeah, they are. Instead, I'm going to cover the vampires who once inhabited my other favorite region of the country, New England. Ah, well, I do know of four vampires who lived on Staten Island, and they're still <laughs> to this day. Well, New York is not New England, but yeah, they, they are still there, as I understand it. There might be a fifth one soon. Mm. Spoilers. Throughout the 19th century, tuberculosis was running rampant in Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Vermont, and New Hampshire. Relatively little was known about the disease at the time, which is the perfect sort of breeding ground for what happened next. Known then as consumption because of how it seemed to consume somebody from the inside out, tuberculosis is a highly, highly contagious bacterial disease that wreaks havoc on your lungs and sometimes other parts of your body. At the time when doctors were still struggling to figure out what was going on, a lot of people started to believe that it wasn't an infectious disease killing off whole families at a time, but rather a vampiric pandemic. Oh my. Which, by the way, I call vampiric pandemic as a band name. <laughs> that's pretty good the thought was that the first person in a group or family who died was actually sick with something insidious and that once they passed they began draining away the life force of their still living loved ones until they were eventually reunited in death it's interesting because at least in most cases there was no belief that the person was rising from their grave and drinking anybody's blood but rather somehow doing all this from the comfort of the tomb hmm in order to stop this person from continuing to haunt everyone to death, the body was exhumed and essentially autopsied to check for any too recent signs of life, such as the presence of fresh liquid blood in their heart or stomach. When they found an alleged vampire, sometimes the solution was as simple as reburying the body upside down. But other times people would go ham and burn the organs that had been removed. Then they would either inhale the smoke as it was burning, or they would wait a bit and consume the ashes. Oh, my gosh. This was supposed to cure them, and it was a tradition that can actually be traced back to Romania. Wow. Oh, yeah. Uh. 
So that obviously sounds cuckoo nuts today. But what struck me as interesting about that, specifically the breathing in the smoke and like having kind of the ashes, um, it makes me think of my grandpa because back in the late 1920s, early 1930s, he had to go live in a tuberculosis hospital for a while after his brother died. Mm -hmm. And one of the things they would have the kids do was lie face down on the ground and breathe dirt into their lungs. Okay. Because it was almost like, you know, how you have like granular stuff in a body scrub. So that was kind of the thought that like the dirt is going to go into your lungs and kind of scrub away the bad stuff. Like nobody's thinking it's a bad idea to literally have dirt in your lungs. That's that, that, that is, that is a crazy thing to consider. A lot of his stories from the TB hospital were pretty wild. I can certainly understand going outside to get lots of fresh air. Mm hmm. And and be in nature and and, and the, the healing aspects of 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 being outside, right? Um, but that's a little too outside. That's in, outside inside. <laughs> well, the, well, and a lot of the problem too with them going outside is they were not allowed to run. Sure. Because oh no, your lungs are weak, and so they couldn't like you couldn't have a ball even to roll across the floor to each other because they were worried. Well, if the ball gets away, a child's natural instinct is going to be to chase after it. Yeah. So the TB hospitals were wild. Uh, so things had gotten a little bit better, you know, after the Victorian era, but not much better. But at least he didn't have to, like, drink anybody's ashes. Yeah. So, you know, Papa, you didn't have it that hard. You didn't have to drink ashes. So that's yeah. got that going for yeah. you. So there are a few infamous cases that came out of the New England Vampire Panic, which is actually how it's remembered today. The first recorded instance was in Manchester, Vermont in 1793, when Isaac Burton's wife, Hulda, came down with tuberculosis. In an attempt to save her, he had his first wife, Rachel, exhumed and burned. But believe it or not, Hulda died anyway. There was also Frederick Ransom of South Woodstock, Vermont, who died of tuberculosis in 1817 and whose father had his heart burned to protect the rest of the family. But it's worth noting that Frederick was a student at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire at the time. So he wasn't living at home and they would have been just fine if they had let him rest. But the belief wasn't that this is a contagious disease. It was a family member has died of this illness. So we better go ahead and burn him to save the rest of us. Yeah. Which is really, really strange. And people point out, too, that Frederick was from like a more affluent family of educated people, whereas a lot of these other instances, it's more in rural communities. When, when, when was this? Uh, Frederick Ransom specifically was in 1817. This was a, over a 100 year period from 1793 to 1895, I believe. Hmm. That's it's unexpected. Yes, it even, is. Even for being back then, that's not yeah. so far back then that that sort of thing makes sense to me. R right. Yeah. It's really quite strange. Um, another interesting instance is that of the Ray family in Griswold, Connecticut, who are remembered today as the Jewett City Vampires. Lemuel Ray died of tuberculosis in 1845, followed six years later by his father, Henry. After another two years, another son, Alicia, died of tuberculosis. The following year, 1854, Henry Jr. came down with tuberculosis, and the surviving members of the Ray family decided enough was enough. They had Lemuel and Alicia exhumed and burned right there in the cemetery in front of their neighbors and everybody. Like, people just formed a crowd and watched them. As soon as they pulled the bodies out of the ground, they set them on fire. Wow. This garnered a huge amount of media attention, which is how they ended up with such a cool nickname. Hmm. The last case I want to talk about 
uh, as part of the New England vampire panic is that of Mercy Brown from Exeter, Rhode Island. Hers was another family that lost several members to tuberculosis. Her mother Mary passed in 1884, then her sister Mary Olive in 1891, followed by Mercy herself shortly afterwards. They left behind Mercy's father George and her brother Edwin, but Edwin soon started showing symptoms of tuberculosis. I'm not sure what George thought was going on, if he kind of understood the disease a little bit more by that point. I mean, it's the late 1890s. Uh, But he was adamant that whatever was happening to his family was not supernatural. Still, he was on the verge of losing the last family member he had, and it wasn't too difficult for some of his neighbors to convince him that he needed to exhume his family's bodies in order to save his son's life. Mary and Mary Olive both showed the expected amount of decomposition, but Mercy's remains looked fresh even after two months in the grave, and there was liquid blood in her heart. Hmm. Of course, it's worth mentioning that the exhumation took place in March of 1892, meaning that Mercy's body hadn't actually been in the earth very long. You see, it's way too cold in New England to dig graves by hand in the winter months, so she was kept in an above-ground crypt in temperatures that were steadily below freezing. I see. Yeah, so with that in mind, you kind of expect her to be well-preserved. So that's the only reason why she seemed, if you'll forgive me, fresh. Yeah. Because she'd been frozen. But of course, that's not what anybody believed in that moment. They burned her heart and liver and stirred the ashes into a tonic for Edwin before decapitating Mercy and reburying her in unconsecrated grounds in a different cemetery with her head resting on top of her chest. Edwin died two months later. Mm-hmm. I don't want to end on that bummer of a note, though. So I'm going to close out this spooky episode by telling you some of the more unique vampire lore I've come across from around the world. Okay. I'm really excited about this. So the first one comes from Kosovo, where it's believed that only identical twins born on a Saturday can see vampires. Can see them? Yeah, those are the only ones. You have to be identical, born on a Saturday. Just just to see To a even vampire. see them, yep. In the Philippines, they have the Mandarugo, who disguises himself as a beautiful woman during the day before sprouting wings and a long, thin tongue at night. He lives on such tasty treats as the snot of sick people, unborn babies, and whatever human entrails he can get his claws on. Ugh, gross. Yeah. (laughs) Gross dude. (laughs) He's a sicko. He's an El Sicko. Uh, Poland's Vieshta can only be stopped if their head is buried in a mix of poppy seeds and blossoms, while in Bulgaria, a vepir should be chained to their grave with garlands of wild roses. Hmm. The Azima of Suriname appears totally human during the day, but turns into a bright blue ball of light at night when it floats into the home of its intended victims and drinks their blood for as long as it wants. It can be warded off by garlic, obviously. But another effective method of protection is scattering a mix of seeds and nails in your yard before you go to bed. Hmm. And I'll end with my favorite, Romania, the spiritual home of modern vampire lore. There are two types of vampires in traditional Romanian myth. There's the dead strigoi and living strigoi. Dead strigoi are more like zombies, in my opinion. They're reanimated corpses without souls who prey on their living family members. Living Strigoi, however, are vampiric witches who have two souls, one that stays inside their body and one that they send out to do their bidding. 
So the sort of errands a living Strigoi soul might perform are exchanging hot goss with other Strigoi souls or drinking blood from someone's heart or the space between their eyes. One thing worth noting about the living Strigoi is that the males can father children and the females are able to marry mortals and assume relatively normal lives. The only drawback there is that these uh, female living Strigoi have insatiable sexual appetites that will eventually lead to the death of their husband. Death by snoo snoo. Oh my God. But I'm sure there are worse ways to go. <laughs> and that, Boils and Ghouls, is the extremely, extremely condensed history of real life vampires. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. Just crazy. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. Wow. Oh, yeah. So, thanks for spending some time with us today. Hopefully you enjoyed learning more of the truth behind the greatest mythological creature of all time. And if you did, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. I'll put some cutie vampire pics up on our Instagram and Twitter accounts. We're at FantasticHPod on both. You can also shoot us a message at FantasticHistoryPod at gmail.com if you know of any amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history that you'd like us to cover. Or if you just want to say hi. Until next time, protect your neck. Yeah. Yeah.